All right, the rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and you will get used to me saying that, I'm sure, for a number of weeks. Probably out of all of the chapters in the book of Romans, this one is worthy of most a lot of our time in as far as breaking up these chapters and thinking through them and going through each verse and uh, seeing what God has taught in them I think this chapter is very significant to have an understanding of and even being able to rejoice in it when I began our study in Romans I think I shared with you a quote from Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. And it's the very first thing he says in that preface as he's introducing that work. He said this, he said, This letter, meaning Romans, is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it, word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I agree with what he says here. This letter is uniquely designed to be an encouragement to us in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, having more than just a surface level understanding of what God has done for us through the person and work of His Son. So spending significant time as we have done studying these chapters is very important. And then you come to Romans 8, which all would agree is the pinnacle of the whole letter. It is the peak. It has been called the Mount Everest, not only of the letter, but of the whole New Testament. So how much more true would it be for us to really take the time to meditate on it and to think about it and see how it connects? The Word of God is designed so that, yes, you can go through something very quickly in the Word of God and get an understanding of what it says and what it means and maybe some application. But I hope you've come to realize by now that the way that God has designed His Bible is that when you're in it and the more you're in it and the more you meditate upon it, I mean really chew on what you're seeing here and think about it, the more connections are made. The more the connections are made to the rest of Scripture and the more the connections are made to your own individual life and how it applies. We need to regain that Puritan art of biblical meditation, finding passages of Scripture that you're just focused on and thinking about. We live in a culture that's so fast and hurried. We're always in a hurry. We're always ready to get to the next thing, right? We need to treat God's Word differently than that. And in this series in Romans, I figured, look, I'm 48 years old now. I don't know how, many, how much longer I'm going to have to 
be a pastor, but I doubt I'll ever go through Romans again in my preaching. There's just too much else in the Bible. It's unlikely, I've been here 12 years, okay? It's unlikely in the rest of the span of the time that I'm pastoring them and I have a time to walk through Romans again. So I don't want to hurry through it. And I've got plenty of time. I know some of you don't. I'm not trying to be mean. I get it. But you'll learn everything you didn't learn here when you get to where you're going next, if you know what I mean. But I'm not really in a hurry with this. And I think the more we saturate ourselves in these verses and chapters, it will be very helpful to us. I want to do something. Let's read this morning, chapter 8, beginning verse 1. And I think we'll just take the time to read through verse 17, because this is... I think one section in Romans, the first half of it, and then there is somewhat of a transition beginning verse 18 going to the end of the chapter. So let's begin in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also uh, may also be glorified with Him. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing upon His Word. 
Father, I pray now that you would help us to gain understanding in these verses as important as they are, that your Spirit, to whom they point, the Spirit of Christ who is in us, would illuminate these words for us. I pray that you would gift me now by your Spirit to do what you have providentially and sovereignly placed me to do, and that is to Preach your word with love for the edification of your people. And I pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 8 has always been hailed as one of the most significant and encouraging chapters in the whole Bible. And if Paul compiles and summarizes all he has taught thus far in this letter, this chapter begins, as we just saw, with no possibility of condemnation for anyone in Christ Jesus. No possibility whatsoever for someone who is in Christ Jesus to face condemnation. That's why he begins it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation not used a ton of times in scriptures, has reference not just to the verdict or judgment of guilty, but to the punishment that accompanies it. Eternal damnation, that is another kind of phrase we use in reference to this. And for the Christian, as we see here, and we'll look at more carefully next week, in that first verse, there is no possibility of condemnation. That's how he begins the chapter. And friends, he ends this chapter with absolutely no possibility of separation from God. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he names a bunch of things. And he says, Verse 38, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, for those who are in Christ, no possibility of condemnation, no possibility of separation from God's unique, special love that He set on us. We just read about it in Ephesians 1, that He set upon us before the foundation of the world when He chose us in Christ and in love predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And for the people in that category... There is no condemnation for them, no possibility of it, and no separation from them. Can you see why this chapter has become the favorite of so many Christians? I mean, how wonderful is that? It doesn't get any more encouraging than that. In other words, what we find in this chapter is that what God has done for us in Jesus is full and final It is a complete gospel, beginning with good news and ending with good news for us, you see. It is all good news for the believer in Christ Jesus. Truly, we see here 
As Paul mentioned in chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It leads to, results in, full and final salvation to everyone who believes. That is the gospel being unfolded. Yes, in all the chapters that we've been at before, but in chapter 8, we're seeing the outworking of it. In chapter 8, you will find yourself both in this world, walking through suffering, but while you're doing that, you're understanding that a day is coming where there is glory for you. It is a chapter full of the fullness of the gospel. Now, I think it's helpful as we begin this week just to kind of introduce ourselves to this chapter and perhaps what is the most important theme within it. I think it's helpful, just give me a minute to just catch us up in Romans. Maybe there's even somebody here who hasn't been a part of all our sermons of where we're been. I won't take long on this, but just hear me out here. You'll remember that the first three chapters were about God's wrath. If you wanted to summarize the first three chapters of the book of Romans, you would not use the word love. You would use the word wrath. God's wrath being revealed from heaven, chapter 1, verse 18, from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then what he does from that point on, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, about verse 20, is he clarifies what he means by mankind being under the wrath of God. He means every single human being without exception. Jew, Gentile, all of the nations under the headings of Gentiles, all guilty as charged. But then you had that wonderful chapter in, verses, in chapter 3 and verses 21 to 26 and how Christ was put forward, right, on the cross as a propitiation to be received by faith. That word propitiation is the appeasement of wrath. In other words, the wrath of God is satisfied for His people on that cross in Jesus Christ so that there's no more wrath for the people of God. There's no more wrath for the people of God because the wrath was satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he starts to be, teach there that that work of Christ being applied to a person must be received by faith alone, remember? It's not received by works. It's not received through keeping the law or being real good. It's received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, in chapter 4 and 5, he elaborates on that. And shows how that is always how people have been saved is through faith alone and the promise of God for a Redeemer. And the only difference being now, after the cross, we know the name of the Redeemer and we know what He did and we know what He said and we know the outcome of it and we know how He made atonement for our sins on the cross and that He was raised again. And so our faith is resting in Him and then in chapter 6 and 7, there is some outworking of 
the person of Christ and His work specifically on the cross and how it applies to us. You'll remember in chapter 6, he begins with the cross and explains that because of the cross and the resurrection and your union with Jesus now by faith, you are dead to sin. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You can look at it this way. When Christ died, you died with Him. When He rose, you rose with Him. He went out of the tomb, so did you, and you walk now in newness of life. And so He's explaining to us, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness in your life. Don't live any longer like a slave to sin. The, the cross, Jesus through the cross broke that power of sin. So you're no longer enslaved. You've got to think of yourself that way and pursue that holiness. And we had that that theological term, that fancy term that shows up there that we use for that. It's called sanctification. And we learned whereas the first five chapters of Romans deals with justification, that is, when you believe in Jesus, you're declared righteous. It means you're forgiven of all your sins and He gives you all the righteousness you need because He credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. But beginning in chapter 6 now and running through about halfway through chapter 8, we're dealing with this doctrine of sanctification. And so in chapter 6, he's telling us you're no longer slaves through the work of Christ. Chapter 7, he's explaining that the law is not going to be the power source for sanctification. That the law mixed with your indwelling sin actually poses problems for you. He detailed that out. And he ended like we did last week with that verses 14 through the end of the chapter in chapter 7. Remember we saw Paul's confusion because he's a conflicted man. He's confused because he wants to obey God, but he can't find that he can do it perfectly. And he keeps sinning. He gets to the point where he draws that conclusion that he's just a wretched man still in need of a Savior, right? That's in sanctification. We start out and we realize we're no longer slaves of sin and we start out to obey God and it doesn't take very long for us to realize that the culprit, remember we identified the culprit, our own indwelling sin is still there. It keeps us often from what we would like to do. But Then we come into Romans 8. And what I want to do is I want to draw out the dramatic contrast between what we just studied last week in Romans 7 and what we just read this week in Romans 8. There are contrasts, really, and I want to draw some of those out. Chapter 7 was largely a chapter of defeat. Now, the beginning of chapter 7 talked about the victory of Christ over the law, we're bound to Him, and led that led down to about verse 6. But then by verse 7 and beyond, Paul's describing, through his own personal experience, defeat. Defeat by sin before he was saved, and then even after he's saved, he's describing defeat and discouragement. And as we mentioned last week, confusion because of this conflict in his soul. And he ends there, O wretched man that I am, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is a chapter about defeat. But is this to be the picture of the Christian life? 
Are those verses to describe our primary experience as Christians? One of just constant defeat and sin taking control and making me captive and using my body for sin. Oh boy, I wish I could do what was right, but I can just never do what's right. Friends, with, if that were the case, then Christians would be nothing more than Eeyores walking around all the time. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. But that isn't the picture of the Christian life. That's a part of the Christian life. And we drew that out. And it was important for Paul to bring out that personal testimony to bear and say that at times I walk through this. This is where I am. But that's only part of the story. That's not the whole. You see, in verse 25 of, or verse 24 of chapter 7, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But did you notice in verse 25, he provides the answer? Don't stop at verse 24. And don't stop in chapter 7. Because beginning in verse 25, he's about to provide the answer, the solution to this problem he's presented. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is going to be this conflict within me, but I'm... I've learned, and I want you to learn, says Paul, not me. Paul says that. I've learned, and I want you to learn, the answer to progressively growing in serving the law of God with your mind, right? Because the contrast, and the biggest one we should see, is that whereas Romans 7 is a chapter of defeat, discouragement, chapter 8 is a chapter of victory, Victory by God's grace over those that indwelling sin that is still there. Not perfect victory. Hear that. Not perfect victory, but what we like to say is progressive victory. The Christian life even now is not a hopeless life. You think about Paul's letter as just a letter. or uh, If you think about it in that context, it's a letter. And if you take those verses in chapter 7, let's say verses 14 through the end of the chapter, you could read those in probably two minutes. And then you get to chapter 8 and you move on, you see. He did not intend for us to live our whole Christian experience in Romans 7. He intended us for us to pick up in the next verse, in verse 25, and work our way through chapter 8, you see. That there is an answer through Jesus Christ. Remember we said this is a complete gospel. And we need to understand the fullness of the gospel, that we are victors and that there is available to the Christian victory over indwelling sin progressively, not perfectly, but progressively in our lives. We can, by God's grace, overcome sin in our lives. It is a chapter of victory. As a matter of fact, did you notice that in verse 37 of chapter 8? It actually ends this way. 
No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That word conqueror in the Greek is where we get our word Nike or where they get the shoe brand. It means conqueror. But Paul, I think, actually made up a word here, which is why they call it more than conquerors. They say more than conquerors. That comes from one word. He, he put a prefix on that word, Nike, and it, it's like this. It's, it, it means super conquerors. We are super conquerors over sin and death and the world and the devil through Him who loved us and by His grace, but this is what He has made us to be. So if we stay in Romans 7, we are not going to be the kind of people God has created us newly to be in Jesus Christ. And if we live a life of continual defeat in sin, then we are not living out the fullness of the gospel provided for us as he's about to explain in Romans chapter 8. There is more to the Christian experience and to the gospel than just the forgiveness of your sins and of justification. There is a life of sanctification that leads right into glorification. That's chapter 8. Sanctification as we lead right into glorification. We can have victory over sin. I hope for many of you who have conflict with certain sins that seem to get a foothold on you, you need to understand, we need to understand that there is victory available over that sin because the devil and your own flesh will tell you there isn't. The devil thrives in the realm of discouraged believers. That's why we said it last week, defeat and sin leads to discouragement and unchecked will lead to more defeat and unchecked leads to downright despair. People just give up. I was hearing about a missionary recently and I think this happened years ago. And I just heard somebody talking to it on a pod, about it on a podcast or in a sermon or something. But at any rate, this missionary who was out in the field ends up leaving his wife and going off with another woman and leaving the missionary field. And his pastor from back home asked him, what happened? And he said, well, I just got tired of fighting. I got tired of fighting my indwelling sin. You see, friends, Romans 7 can be a dangerous place because defeat can lead to discouragement and discouragement leads to more defeat and more defeat can eventually live to despair, lead to despair and give up. How many people in here have even had those thoughts? As you have battled indwelling sin and come to the conclusion that there's no hope for you in this particular area. Friends, Romans chapter 8 just flies in the face of that way of thinking. It is the gospel of hope for transformation and for holiness in the believer's life. That's why it's here and that's why it follows so perfectly on the heels of Romans chapter 7. 
there can be for you and for me through the gospel progressive victory over sin in this life. It is available to us. It is more than available. It is God's design for us. Progressive victory over sin. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 in one of the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he uses those that phrase, hunger and thirst, to indicate this internal craving that a man or a woman has for righteousness. And in this case, it is, I want to be righteous. I want to do what's right. It was the heart that Paul expressed in Romans 7. I don't do the good I want to do. I delight in the righteous law of God in my inner being. This is what I want. He craves it, you see. But look at the promise that Jesus gives. For they shall be satisfied. Do you have an internal craving for righteousness? That you really long to do what's right and to glorify God in your body and in your relationships and in your service to Him. That's a good thing. Jesus says, you will be satisfied. Now I recognize that Jesus did not mean in this life completely satisfied. I get it. A perfectly satisfied But he certainly didn't mean that you will only be satisfied in heaven, but until then, this craving for righteousness will never be satisfied or filled. Friends, the very craving for righteousness comes from God Himself. I think once we catch on to that, it can really get momentum going forward. Wait, I desire to do what's right and I delight in the law of God in my inner being and I want to do right things. I want to be righteous. I want to obey God. Guess what? That comes from God because the lost world doesn't talk like that. That's a work of God in you. That's a work then that God can and does satisfy even in this life. You will grow progressively in your ability under God's grace to obey Him more and more and more. It's what Paul said back in chapter 6 and verse 14. He said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law but under grace. And he explained in chapter 7, didn't he, how you're not under the law but under grace? See, if you were under the law, you'd be in Romans 7 forever. But you're not under the law. You're under grace and therefore our lives can be lived out in the freedom and the fullness and the power of Romans chapter 8. So be encouraged by this, Christian. This first contrast is one of from defeat to victory. You're not feeling good in Romans 7. 
And whenever you sin and you get to that point, you feel that conscience bearing down on you and you say, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this immediately in your mind? You have to go to Jesus Christ now and receive the forgiveness and more than that, the power and the grace to gain victory in that area over time progressively. You see how that works? Sin doesn't rule us anymore. God does by His grace, and therefore we can progressively gain lives of victory. And t- Let me tell you something, friends. There's nothing more of a joy killer than sin. Sin kills joy. It's a joy killer. It robs of joy. It kills your joy. It robs your peace. It kills your peace. And Jesus said, my peace I give to you. It's mine, and I'm giving it to you. It's not like the world gives. This is a different kind of peace. But what happens when we give in to sin is that sin robs us of that joy that, frankly, is ours by right because Jesus gives it to us. So the pathway then to living a life of joy and peace is not going to be found in the realm of sin. It's going to be found in the realm of righteousness. When a Christian lives in the realm of sin, they get into Romans 7 types of feelings, and that's very negative. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, He doesn't leave us in that condition. And He opens the door to Romans 8 and says, Now walk out. Walk out in the fullness and the freedom and enjoy serving the Lord and enjoy the soft pillow of a clear conscience at night. Enjoy the power that is working in you, overcoming your own sin. Believe it or not, I don't think God wants us to always be discouraged and depressed. Believe it or not, a God, a good God and a loving Heavenly Father wants us to experience joy. He wants us to experience uh, peace and the warmth of His love and His smiling countenance upon us. The one thing that stands between you and that is your indwelling sin. But thanks be to God, He shows us in Romans 8 what to do about that. So that we can progressively grow in our ability to say no to sin. Say no to sinful desires. And as Paul puts it, put them to death by the Spirit. And that leads me to say this for this second contrast. Did you notice the contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8? And I would say not just between chapter 7 and chapter 8, but chapters 1 through 7 and chapter 8. It's very significant contrast. In chapters 1 through 7, the focal point, the gospel focal point for us was the work of Jesus Christ for us. The work of Jesus Christ for us in the cross work specifically and what that accomplished. But there's a transition in chapter 8. The focal point of these verses that we read this morning is not the work of the Son. It is the result of the work of the Son, but it is not the work of the Son for us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. See, that's the key. The work of the Holy Spirit in us is the focal point 
now in this chapter. All of it, of course, the Spirit's work in us comes from Jesus' work. He is the one that had to do what He would do and then along with the Father send to us the promised Holy Spirit. But when it comes to the work of sanctification for our pursuit of holiness, the key person in the triune God whose role it is to sanctify is the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, we need to know that because it is possible to even be a true Christian and not walk in the fullness and the freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is possible to have our ducks in a row when it comes to justification. But when it comes to sanctification, do not understand that the key is essentially knowing the Spirit is there, knowing what the Spirit does, and by faith walking in the Spirit's power to do what the Spirit commands, you see. To by the Spirit, as he said here, put to death the deeds of the body. We need to focus now on the Holy Spirit for a number of weeks as Paul reveals him here to see what He does within us in that fullness of the gospel to provide us this life and this peace and this joy through obedience and how He helps us, enables us to defeat the indwelling sin in our lives. See, He is the answer to the problem we experience in Romans 7 with our indwelling sin. The key to living a progressively victorious life then is understanding the promise of the Holy Spirit within us. He provides the power for victory over sin. There is no true victory over sin apart from the Holy Spirit. Non-Christian people can stop smoking crack. They can get control of themselves and go to AA meetings and all these other things and cease that particular sin. But that was not a spiritual transformation. That was not a work of the gospel. The work of the gospel by the Spirit is different as He works within us to actually put these things to death and then to live righteously. It's a two-sided coin. It's not that we're just not doing one thing, but the thing we're doing now is spirit-filled and righteous. So the key then is the Spirit of God in us, and that is what we are going to be focusing on. Now let me scan through about four pages of my notes for this message to bring this conclusion. For those of you who read The Pilgrim's Progress... Just by show of hands. Who's read their Pilgrim's Progress? Again? Oh, good. Pilgrim's Progress people right here. Pilgrim's Progress written, of course, by John Bunyan while he was in prison for preaching the gospel as an unregistered Baptist in a time when that was not allowed. And while he was there, he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory, of course, of the Christian life. You remember the time when he encountered, he and Hopeful, on their way to the celestial city, and they encounter, they get captured by um, 
by this uh, giant despair. Remember this? Giant despair captures them and he brings them to Doubting Castle and throws them into the dungeon. And giant despair was quite a terrible person, terrible giant, and would come into them and beat them. And then he'd shut the gate again. He'd come in and he'd beat them again. And then he'd come in. Christian and Hopeful are in despair. They are in Doubting Castle. And for the purposes of our analogy, I will say they are in Romans 7. Now let me read to you what happened. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, that was his name of Pilgrim, as one half amazed, break out in a passionate speech. What a fool am I! Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And said, hopeful, well, that's good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. And Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned, the key gave back. And the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Now God gives many promises in the Bible. But one of the most glorious promises He has made in the Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament and right from the lips of Jesus Himself in John 14, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And see, friends, sometimes we're like Christian and hopeful and we get captured by giant despair because we've sinned. We failed. And He locks us then in His castle, doubting castle, and His giant despair is just beating us over and over and over again. But what we need to realize in that moment is that God has given us a key Friends, God has given us a key that unlocks all the dungeons in Doubting Castle, including the Roman 7 one, and His name is the Holy Spirit. He is within you. You don't have to stay locked in sin anymore. You don't have to stay in the tomb. You don't have to stay in the dungeon. It's part of the wonderfulness of the fullness of the gospel. It unlocks that gate. It rolls away the stone. And it empowers you, friends, just to walk right out in liberty. Friends, if you walk by the promised Holy Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The key then to the Christian life and what sets it apart from every other religion in the world is that our God comes and dwells in us. Our God dwells in us and enables us to do everything He has commanded us to do. That's the fullness of the gospel. And that is what the Apostle Paul will unfold for us in these beginning verses in Romans chapter 8. So let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Spirit We confess and believe that He is in us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have not left us orphans. You have given us the helper. Truthfully, the only helper we need. And I pray that as we study Romans 8, God, I ask that You would help us 
to become a spirit-conscious people, a spirit-empowered people, that you would transform us by your spirit from one degree of glory to the next as we look into the wonderful face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.